All right. Good evening. That's when you guys say good evening. Good evening. There we go. That's better. Okay, so we are in uh, what was going to be the final sermon in this series called Uproot. Uh, Today, I had planned uh, to end our sermon series um, with the story of King David. We're still going to be talking about King David tonight, um, but I have a very wise and beautiful wife. And I was talking to my very wise and beautiful wife yesterday, and we were talking about um, a lot of the things that I've covered here And she began to talk about some other passages of scripture and putting some pieces together. And as we're talking and and, and as as she's explaining her, um, her observations on these passages, she goes, I'm writing your sermon for next week for you right now. Write this down. Here are your main points. And I'm like, hey, you know what? This is a pretty good idea. So next week's sermon comes to you from her through me. All right, so next week we're going to be covering one more um, place in uh, the Uproot series. So far, we have covered um, a number of uh, case studies of people who have had sin in their lives that remained unrepentant. These people were confronted uh, about their sin and chose to remain in that sin. And, and we saw how they experienced devastating consequences. We saw um, how Achan in Joshua chapter 7 was confronted, given an opportunity to repent, did not, and he and his entire family suffered for it. The whole nation of Israel truly uh, suffered for it. We looked at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how they were confronted about their sin and given opportunity to fess up, and they did not, and both of them lost their lives. Judas had all the opportunity in the world to repent because he literally lived with Jesus, and he did not, and he lost his life. King Jehu had opportunity to cleanse the nation and cleanse his own heart from idolatry. He had opportunity to repent, and he did not, and devastating consequences came from that. And so where I want to go today is to finally bring us to a place where we can see that there are stories in the Bible where someone is confronted about their sin and actually does repent. Because after all, that is what the point of this series is, to bring us to a place of repentance. The point of this series is to uproot those things. And we've seen a number of examples of people who did not uproot their sin. Tonight, we're going to look at the example of one who does. This is a story of a man who started well and finished poorly. Um, One might view him sort of the way that many people in the professional golf world view a man named Jean Vandeveld. Jean Vandeveld is known in the golf world more for what he failed to do than he is known for what he actually accomplished. And most of his story centers around the events of the Open Championship in 1999. Uh, So the Open Championship in 1999 was a three-round tournament. And going into this tournament, Jean Vandeveld was pretty much unknown in the golf world. 
He was ranked 152nd in the world. He had not won or contended for any major championships. But this was the moment that was going to define his career. He was poised to be, in the third round of this championship, the first Frenchman to win this major since 1907. And so this would have been a legend-making experience for Jean Vandeveld. Going into the third round of the tournament, Jean Vandeveld held a five-stroke lead. Does anybody here watch golf just by a show of hands? No one. All right, cool. Uh, my dad used to watch golf when I was growing up. Um, actually, I'll better describe that as my dad would watch golf and NASCAR And the way that he would watch these things is he would turn them on and then go to sleep. And we were not allowed to change the channel while he was sleeping. Because if we did, he would wake up and say, I was watching that. And when he did wake up at the end of his nap, he would want to know what happened. Okay, this was before DVR. And so DVR was me. I was supposed to sit there and watch golf and NASCAR and then tell him when he woke up, this is what took place. He'd say, well, what happened in the race? And I'd go, well, they turned left and they kept turning left and on and on and on, turning left hundreds of times. That's what happened. Some people crashed. Somebody won. I wasn't really paying attention. So uh, Jean Vandeveld in 1999, I'm sure my dad was probably sleeping as this was happening. Uh, going into the third round, Vandeveld was in the lead by five shots. Uh, he was leading two guys named Justin Leonard and Craig Perry. And so he was going into the 18th hole, okay, the last hole. Last hole, he's got a five-shot lead. Steps up to the tee, knowing that all he has to do on this par four is get a double bogey. Okay, if he gets a six on this hole, he wins. That is not a difficult thing to do, all right? And this hole is not especially difficult. So he's stepping up to the tee knowing all I have to do is get a six. A normal person would play tentatively or, or would play uh, um, not trying to take risks. That's not what Vandeveld did. Vandeveld stepped up to the tee, and rather than hitting an iron to lay up into the fairway, he hits a drive, trying to get as close to the green as he can. Uh, His tee shot sails off to the right and lands in deep, deep rough. But still, all is not lost. That is just the first shot. The second shot, the wise thing to do would be hit a short iron and lay up. Instead, Vandeveld grabs a two iron because he wants to blast it towards the hole. It does not go towards the hole. It goes towards the bleachers. Okay, the ball hits the bleachers, caroms off the bleachers, hits the top of a stone wall, and lands in more thick grass on the other side of a moat. Okay? Vandeveld goes to the ball finds that the ball has now gone down the hill into the moat and is in water a a couple of inches deep. 
spends a while, he takes off his socks and shoes, gets down into the water, tries to figure out, should I try to hit the ball out of the water? It's possible. Should I do that or take a penalty stroke and drop? He goes back and forth. He stands there in the water. He talks to his caddy. Finally decides, I'll take a penalty and drop. So he takes the drop and now is looking at stroke number five. And he needs a six to win. On the fifth shot, he hits the ball into the bunker. Then he goes into the bunker for shot number six. Hits that shot finally onto the green. Now at this point, he is putting for seven. And he needs to make this shot or he won't even get into a tie for the lead. He makes the shot, gets a seven, and then goes into a three-way playoff. And what do you think happened in this three-way playoff? Any guesses? He lost. (laughs) That is right. He lost. He buckled under the pressure and lost. Um, The uh, the one the the guy who won was a a guy named Paul Lowry, who was in third coming into this last uh, couple of holes. Vandeveld ended up finished second in this tournament. And this was one of the greatest collapses in the history of the sport. After this tournament, Vandeveld never contended for another major the rest of his career. After that point, he played professionally for another nine years and never made the leaderboard in another major championship. This could have been his defining moment. And he buckled under the pressure. He was in the lead going into the final hole. All he had to do was finish well. And he did not. The same could be said of King David. King David spent much of his early life following after the Lord. He spent much of his early life glorifying God in various ways. He was described, as we're going to see at one point, as a man after God's own heart. And as we know, David did not finish well. He suffered one of the most epic collapses in all of human history. A man after God's own heart who ends up in an affair in murder, in one of the worst cover-up attempts in the entirety of the scriptures. So we're going to be in a bunch of different places tonight. Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to First Samuel. Um, we're going to be looking at a, a, a couple of places here. The first is in First Samuel chapter 13. First uh, Samuel chapter 13. Uh, we find this description of David. At this point, Saul is the king of Israel. Saul anointed by God over the people, but Saul himself falls into sin and disobeys. And so God tells King Saul that Saul is going to be removed, and he is going to be replaced, it says, by a man after God's own heart. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. 
uh, Samuel is speaking to Saul and says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so, Samuel, the prophet at the time, tells King Saul, God is going to take this kingdom from you, and the man that he is going to raise up to take your place will be a man after God's own heart. So after this particular scene, for a number of years, Saul remains king. But David, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, is given the anointing by the prophet to be the next king over Israel. And in this particular scene, Samuel goes and, and, and there's the sons of Jesse that are assembled and, and Samuel is, is there to anoint one of the seven sons of Jesse to be the next king. And, and he begins to look at those who are bigger and stronger and more handsome. And God keeps telling him, don't pick that guy. Don't pick that guy, not him. In verse 7, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so, based on the heart of David, he is chosen from among his brothers, anointed by Samuel to be the king. In chapter 17, we find one of the most famous stories in all of scripture when David confronts and kills the Philistine soldier Goliath. In this particular scene, David shows courage. He goes to the battlefield where all the other Israelites are hiding, scared, and he goes to the king and he says, I'll fight him. And David goes out not with a sword and shield. David goes out with a slingshot and, and kills this terrifying soldier of Goliath. And, and the people have uh, victory over the Philistines. After this, there's a, a whole long saga that we don't have time to cover tonight. Uh, where uh, Saul tries to kill David, right? Saul realizes that David is the next anointed. Saul tries to take him out. He's afraid of any threats on the throne. And so he's sending people to try to take David out. David goes into hiding. At one point, David is fighting as a mercenary for the Philistines. In another uh, incredible uh, scene in this story, David has the opportunity to kill King Saul. And among us, who wouldn't, right? This is a guy that's trying to kill you. He is literally throwing spears at your head. If you have the chance to take him out, you probably would. I know I probably would. David spares him. And so, there comes a day when Saul dies. And David becomes the king. This brings us to the end of 1 Samuel and takes us into 2 Samuel. David, after taking the throne, begins immediately to obey the Lord in the conquest of the peoples around him. God blesses David in these military conquests and David begins to wreck all of Israel's enemies. He begins to bring into submission all of these people groups that are setting themselves up with 
setting themselves up against Israel. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, we find God entering into this covenant with David, where God promises David, your throne will be established forever. Your descendants will be seated on the throne forever. And so David then prays this beautiful prayer of gratitude. During all of this time, we we find in in other places, David showing his heart of worship for the Lord. Okay, David is writing all of these different psalms. Some of the, uh, the, the best worship that's in the Bible is written by David at this time. He is displaying in so many ways what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. He starts really well. He's going into the 18th hole. He's got a big lead. All he's got to do is finish strong. He doesn't even have to do anything special. Just don't mess up. But that's exactly what David does. David, this incredible man of God, falls into an epic bunker. An epic water trap. He knocks an epic slice off to the right. We look now at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, Joab, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, haven't you come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back at the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Wow. Here we have, again, a guy who in his early life was described as a man after God's own heart. And now he does this. Throughout most of David's life, David was one who continually gave to the Lord everything that he won in battle. And this sets him apart from the characters that we have seen before. He did not do the things that Achan and Ananias and Sapphira did. Namely, Achan, Ananias and Sapphira, Judas, remember, they took the things dedicated to the Lord. They took the dedicated things. They took the spoils for themselves. Well, in chapter 8, verse 11, we read that David did not do this. Chapter 8, verse 11, talking about articles of silver and gold and bronze, it says, These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. David, continually in his earlier life, was dedicating everything over to the Lord. Instead of taking what was dedicated, he dedicated to God what was his Perhaps, after a life of giving over to the Lord, perhaps he felt entitled to take for himself something that he wanted. There's this story in chapter 9 where David does this tremendous act of service for this kid Mephibosheth. David, in this chapter inquires of all of his servants whether or not anyone is remaining from the house of Saul. Because David's best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. 
And so he wanted to show kindness to Jonathan somehow. Is there any way that I can show kindness to the house of Jonathan? And word comes to him that there was a guy whose name was Mephibosheth. But he was crippled, unable to care for himself. And so David takes Mephibosheth and brings him into his house and says, you will eat at my table forever. I'm going to meet every need that you have. I am going to serve you and show you kindness and love. And this provides us an incredible contrast. Because here in chapter 9, what we find is that he brings a powerless person into his house to feed him. And in chapter 11, he brings a powerless person into his house to consume her. This is a tremendous shift. From bringing the powerless in to serve, he brings in the powerless to take. And so, point number one. Dark sin can invade even a devoted heart. Dark sin can invade even a devoted heart. We've talked already about ways that David proved for most of his young life that he was a man after God's own heart. Ways that he thirsted for God. If we read places like Psalms, we find David saying, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you penning these incredible songs of praise, giving to the Lord all that was meant to be his, subduing the enemies of God for the people of God, bringing back the presence of God in the ark, serving him fully. When we contrast his story with with, with some of the others that, that we've covered, we don't know whether ever Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira Jehu, we don't know if there was ever a point in which they loved the Lord. It's not clear to us. The evidence that we looked at sure makes it look like they never did. We don't know for sure. We do know for sure that Judas never did. Okay, so there's some mystery about where their hearts were. David, there is little mystery for most of his life where his heart was. That was with the Lord. Now, that description, though, of David as a man after God's own heart, that description is given before he does any of this stuff, right? In his young life, as he's faithful, he's described when God calls him as a man after God's own heart. He started his journey well. He started his journey faithfully. And then he compromised. Little by little, he compromised. Little by little, he began to give in to temptations. That shows us that there is no one who is immune. There is no person who is immune to temptation. Because not even someone who began the journey fully devoted to God was immune from the temptation to do awful, horrible, irrational things. To hide that sin, to run from God, to consume, to take, to kill. 
One compromise led to another compromise, led to another compromise, led to another. I'm sure that we can think in our real lives of people who fell into sin and our response was, what? Surely not them. I'll never forget getting a phone call from my mom. At the time, I was uh, serving as a youth and college pastor in Virginia. And my mom called me and she was crying and she said, um, I need to tell you about Thomas. Thomas was my pastor. The guy who was so instrumental in shaping me in my young life. A guy who was one of the greatest preachers of the word that I've ever heard. And she said, I I need to tell you about Thomas. And I was like, is he dead? What happened? And she told me that it had come out that Thomas was engaging in affairs. He was found out that he was having to step down. And my world was rocked. I thought, surely not Thomas. Our, our Thomas? Yes, even Thomas was not immune. After that point, I have witnessed situation after situation that could be described as surely not them, but no one is immune. One compromise can lead to another compromise, can lead to another, to another, to another, until eventually... You're in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. After all, even though much of our attention is placed here, Bathsheba was not David's first sexual sin. We read in previous chapters that David was taking more than one wife. Okay? He, was, he was amassing a harem which had been expressly forbidden by God. Okay, so it's not like his sin started in chapter 11. His sin started before that with other compromises. His sin started in ways where he began to dishonor the Lord in small ways, maybe not so obvious ways, but ways that built on top of each other. The first verse of chapter 11 tells us that this was the spring of the year, the times when kings go out to battle. And David sent Joab. So this is a time, the Bible tells us, he was supposed to, be, to have been with the troops. That's his job. It's what God has called him to. He is supposed to be leading the troops in battle. Instead, he sends Joab. Joab is his, uh, his military leader. He says, Joab, you do it. He sends Joab to do this. He decides that instead of being the king, leading his people in battle, he is going to be the king who sits back and just enjoys the spoils. I'm going to be the king who enjoys all the stuff while my servants go and do all the work. It says that it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. The moral of the story there, don't sleep in to the late afternoon, college kids. 
I'm just kidding. That's not the story. (laughs) I would love to do that if I had the chance. But as you guys can hear, we have crying children. So as much as I would love to sleep to the late afternoon, I can't do it. The point is here, David, instead of being where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing, David is just sitting back and letting others do the work for him. Compromise leads to compromise leads to compromise. And he's walking around on the roof of his house and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman. And he sends to one of his servants and says, who is that? And the servant tells him, that's the wife of Uriah. And David says, the wife of my what? The wife of Uriah. The wife of my what? Do you guys get it? Uriah, never mind. Uriah the Hittite. Thank you for laughing, Nicole. Thank you for that. It's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You know that this is a married woman, right? David sends, and it says in verse 4, he sent messengers and took her. He took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. And she conceived and said, I'm pregnant. Now David's got a problem, okay? But David also has a choice. David, at this point, can decide to repent. David doesn't do that. Instead, now he takes that sin and he builds another sin on top of it. Now he says, I got to cover this up. I got to make sure that I'm not found out. I know how to do it. Let me get Uriah back here. And if Uriah sleeps with his wife, then we'll just say, that's Uriah's kid. And maybe that kid will grow up looking like me. And maybe some people will say, boy, you sure look like King David. And they'll just say, ah, thanks. What a compliment. So Uriah comes back. David says, hey, buddy, how's everything going on the front lines? Come on in. Just tell me a report. Uriah gives him a report. And David says, good job. Why don't you go spend the night with your wife before you go back to the battle? But Uriah, the servant of David, shows more self-control than David did. Uriah says, no, I'm going to sleep here at the castle. David wakes up the next morning and finds out that Uriah didn't go home. So he says, "Uh, Uriah, why, why didn't you go home? And Uriah shows him how he has integrity that David does not. Uriah says to him in, in, in verse 11, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah says, that would be wrong. All of my brothers in war are on the battlefield. I'm not just going to come on a vacation. I can't do that. So David tries one more thing. He says, well, maybe if I can get him stone cold drunk, then he'll stumble home. But even then, he just stumbles out to the servants' quarters and sleeps at the castle. Now David says, I didn't want to have to do this, but I still got to cover this up. So he sends word to Joab and says, why don't you take Uriah Put him in a place where you know that he's going to be taken out and then pull back. Then he will lose his life in battle. 
This is David murdering his servant Uriah by using war to do it. Maybe David is trying to justify that by saying, well, I'm not killing him. He's a soldier in war and things happen. After all, this is almost exactly what David says in verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Well, you know, sometimes things just happen. Don't feel too bad about it, Joab. Soldiers die. It's a thing. We're done. It's covered up. Covered my bases. And so then, after that, he brings Bathsheba back into the castle to become his wife. But we find this verse at the end of the chapter. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had managed to get away with it. David had managed to cover his sin. As awful as it was, David used the power that was at his disposal to do a full cover-up. David gets away with it at this point. He gets away with it, or so he thinks. But just like we saw in the story of Achan, just like we saw in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, just like we saw in the story of Judas, just like we saw in the story of King Jehu, God sees He always sees. Achan could not hide the devoted things in his tent. Ananias and Sapphira could not hide the devoted things in their tent. King Jehu could not hide the idolatry that was hidden in Bethel and Dan. Judas could not hide the money that he kept stealing out of the money bag. And David could not hide the sin that he thought he could cover up because God always sees. My friends, no matter how you start, if you fall into sin, if there are things in your life that you refuse to surrender, if there are ways that you have not given yourself completely over to the Lord, God sees. He always does. And there's not a single person in this church that is immune to deep, dark sin. Not even a man who was after God's own heart. So, David is confronted. Point number two. Prophecy doesn't always lead to repentance, but it always precedes it. Chapter 12, after David thinks that he's covered everything up, after David thinks he's gotten away with it, after David thinks he's scot-free, the prophet Nathan comes to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city. Okay, so what's going on here is Nathan approaches David as the judge of Israel. He says, King, I have a matter for you to judge over. Tell me how I should litigate this. 
There's two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. So he paints this incredible scenario. He's like, okay, here's these two guys, a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man steals from the poor man. What should we do here? Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not in a good way, okay? This is not, you're the man, dude. This is, you are this man. Or if any of you have seen the VeggieTales iteration of this story, King George and the Ducky, the, uh, the prophet Pog Grape, or as he's known in this particular special, Melvin, the guy who comes to you every so often to tell you wise things, confronts King George and tells him that he has stolen a ducky. And he looks at King George and he says, You are that man. If you haven't watched it, please do. That was a dead-on impersonation of Paul Grape, all right? So Nathan says to David, You are the guilty man here. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised in the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun." Nathan rebukes him and then hands down this curse from God. The thing is, when we are confronted about the sin in our lives, what we do so well is we rationalize our sin. We make our sin seem like it's a lot better than what it actually is. We pretty it up in various ways or, or we compare it to other people's sins because other people's sins are, are so much worse than ours. This is what David does. David is confronted with this story that Nathan tells him about sheep and his anger is kindled and he says, how dare someone do that? He doesn't even realize yet that he's looking in the mirror. He sees sin in somebody else, but he doesn't see it in himself. He, he sees the ways that other people are unfaithful and they are deserving of judgment and God should, should bring down the hammer on them, but he doesn't see it for, for himself. Nathan has to point out to him, 
you are the one who was guilty of this. You are the rich man who's stolen. God has given you all of this and yet it wasn't good enough for you and you took, you stole, you took advantage. And here's David's response. This, this is key, okay? Because in the, in, in the story of Achan, in, in Joshua chapter 7, God confronts the people. Says somebody's stolen. In, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter looks separately at Ananias and Sapphira and says to them, did you really do this? Judas is hearing the message of the gospel every single day. King Jehu is trying to follow the command of God to rid of idolatry. There's plenty of opportunity and they did not repent. David, in verse 13, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. After we rationalize our sin, after we try to make it better than what it actually is, there comes a time, hopefully, when we get a real look in the mirror when we see ourselves truly for what we have been, and it is jarring. It is disorienting. It it is an ugly picture that's hard to take in. And David's response here is, I have sinned against the Lord. The thing about prophecy, and, and, and in this context what I mean by prophecy is someone who is following after God comes to you and speaks truth into your life that's that's what I mean by prophecy prophecy doesn't guarantee that you are going to repent prophecy doesn't guarantee that you're going to hear it and respond well to it Some people, when they are confronted about their sin, drive even deeper into that sin for whatever reason, and there are myriads of reasons. Or they might drive even deeper into hiding or or into denial about the truth of that. Because here's the thing, truthfully, no one can make you ready to repent. No matter what somebody says to you, if God has not prepared your heart to be repentant, you aren't going to be. No one can muster that up in you. And you can't muster that up in yourself either. You might be sitting in this series that I've been preaching, hearing about repentance over and over and over and over and over. And your response might be, no way. Not gonna happen. I'm not ready. I could be saying things in this series that are speaking right to your soul and you're tuning it out on purpose pushing it off. Truthfully, that was David's response at first, to hide. Because here's the thing. In chapter 11, David sleeps with Bathsheba. Then he murders Uriah. And then the next thing that we find is that there's a son that's born. So we're talking about a period of nine months where David is living in his sin, 
Nine months where David is trying to cover it up. It's not as if David sinned and then repented right away. He repented after he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Commentator named Colin Smith points out that this is a pattern that we see so often in the Bible. That the first response to sin is hardly ever repentance. The first response is usually to hide. Adam and Eve did this. They sinned and then the first thing they did was hide. They run from the Lord. They hide in the bushes. They make themselves coverings with leaves. Peter, the apostle, when Jesus is first calling his disciples, Jesus goes onto the boat and there's this miraculous catch of fish. Jesus shows his power and Peter, knowing that he's a sinful man, doesn't immediately say, make me your disciple, Jesus. In Luke 5, 8, Peter's response is, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter says, I'm gonna run away. So our first response to sin usually is to turn and run. Run from God. Run deeper into hiding. Run deeper into justification. Run deeper into into rationalizing that what we're doing is okay. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe your sin is being confronted by the truth. Maybe your lack of surrender in whatever area is being confronted by the truth of God's word and what you want to do perhaps is to hide. And all I can do standing up here is to hope to be one of many, hopefully, prophetic voices in your life saying to you, turn from sin, surrender. Repentance is always preceded by prophetic truth. That's why community is so important. That's why the church is vital. That's why you can't just watch a sermon on a live stream. I'm glad you are, by the way, for those of you who are watching, I'm glad that you're watching a sermon on the live stream. Keep doing that. But you can't just do that. You have to be willing to be pastored. You have to engage in church community. You have to be in relationship with other people in the church. You have to be connected to prophetic voices that can speak directly to you, to your sin, to your situation. You can't get that from a podcast. You have to have accountability in your life. You you have to have people who will come alongside you and, and, and love you. You have to have people who will come alongside you and share truth. You have to have people who will come alongside you and say, I will help bear this burden. Let me walk with you. The hope being that you will be brought to a place of repentance and surrender. That you will be brought to a place where like David in chapter 12 verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. But it's not a guarantee because prophecy always precedes repentance, but it doesn't guarantee it. Prophecy always comes before it, but it doesn't promise it. And it's our job in the church to present this prophecy, this truth, but only you can stand before God ready to repent or not, ready to surrender or not. My hope is that you will. But some of you won't. And that either or is quite a battle. 
Let me show you what it looks like. Point number three, unrepentant sin festers like cancer and repentance restores life. Turn now to the book of Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, David is writing about his own sin. He's writing about what he did and how he tried to hide. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This was during the time that David tried to hide. This is written before Nathan confronts him. This is when he was trying to pretend that everything was okay. He gotten away with his plan. No one was going to catch him. The cover up was complete. But even in the midst of that, the weight of his sin weighed so heavily upon him. He bore that on his shoulders, knowing that he was not truly free. And he did whatever he could for nine months to try to distract himself, to make himself feel better, until Nathan comes along and rips the lid off. But for a while, what David experienced was this torture of the soul, trying to pretend that everything was fine, Holding on to sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. It's like a cancer that just ate at him. There was never any peace. I want to ask you. Are you carrying around the weight of unrepentance? Can you feel the strength of your soul being sapped as in the heat of summer? Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be weightless? Don't you want to experience peace of mind? You can. You can. I want to reemphasize something I said earlier in the series, and that is that God is not waiting on you with an iron fist. God is not waiting for you to be honest so that he can blast you for it. God is waiting with open arms, ready to take you in with his love. It is his kindness that leads you to repentance. And when David finally lifted that weight off of his shoulders, when he finally surrendered, it set him free. Look at what he says in the surrounding verses. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Guys, I have experienced this firsthand. 
The freedom, the weight being lifted. Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered. Verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I came to you and I said, I'm gonna be honest, Lord. I'm gonna lay this down. And what did you do? You forgave. You forgave, you covered my sin. You didn't count my iniquity against me. So he gives this request. He implores us. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He says, look for God while he may be found. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Don't be like a stubborn horse. Come to the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As long as you are running in wickedness, your sorrows will be many. But if you come to the Lord, what you will receive is steadfast love. So much freedom to be found. Don't be resistant, don't hold back any longer. Come and be free. Now you might be asking, how? What does it look like to do that? Why don't I let David tell you? He expounds in Psalm 51 on the short phrase that he said to Nathan. What he said to Nathan in that moment was, I have sinned against the Lord. But then in Psalm 51, he extends it. This is what it looks like to be repentant. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Those bones that were sapped of strength, let those bones rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, do not, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is what I invite you to do. To come before the Lord in whatever way you need to. And you know what's going on in your heart. God knows what's going on in your heart. If there are things that you are holding back, if there are ways in which you know I have not surrendered, come to God and say, have mercy on me. Hold not my iniquity against me. Cleanse me thoroughly. Lay your sin down before Jesus. Lay the surrender, the control of your life in his hands. Let him give you new life. I cannot make you ready to do that. I cannot say anything that will bring you to a place where you go, all right, you've convinced me. Good argument. Let's do this. I wish I could, but I can't. And maybe, maybe you're sitting here going, I'm still not ready. Maybe you know, I know I need to surrender, but I'm still not ready to. I would ask that you would pray, God, make me ready. Whatever's got to happen for me to be ready, Lord, would you do that in my heart? My prayer for you is that that is what God is doing in your heart right now. Those of you here, those of you watching, that God is preparing in your heart the fruit of repentance. Do not let any more time go by. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for conviction. God, I pray for any person under the sound of my voice who has never surrendered their heart